Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another, what I hope will be, fantastic session in the discovery of Betachem. Trust in Hashem. Before we begin, today's class has been generously sponsored by my dear friends Ian and Sarah Magid. Today's Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, and the purpose of the sponsorship is that the the merit, the zechut of the Torah we study together should bring forth goodness and many blessings in this new month of Mirz Hashem. And we should hear and we should share only b'surot tovot. Okay, so with no further ado and with a focus on where goodness comes from. Let's just do a, a quick refresher. A quick refresher as to what we talked about in the previous episode as we move forward, because this is actually the anatomy of trust, part two. Rabbeinu Bechaya is trying to make it very clear that you can only trust in Hashem. I mean, after he's defined trust, he made the case. Once he defined it, the kind of trust we're talking about wouldn't make sense to place in anybody else. Of course, people get very confused because this world is a dark place and as they make their way through the dim forest, people blunder, terribly so. <laughs> Yesterday we discussed at length the incongruity of placing your betochen, your trust elsewhere. It's actually offensive to God. I know what you're thinking. God is offended. Why would God care? Look, that's a great question. But that question could be asked about anything in Yiddishkeit. Why does God care if we're spending our time studying Torah now or watching a movie? Why does God care if I eat this food that's been carefully supervised and is actually kosher and not that food which was nutritious? but not halachically permissible? Why does God care if your mezuzah has a hairline crack through one of the letters in the many words that it contains? Why does God care about anything? Okay, if you can't relate to ritual, you're more of like a you know, liberal person, you're very open-minded, you believe in not offending people, don't you? Do you believe that if you make somebody feel good, God is happy about that? Do you believe that if you publicly shame and embarrass somebody, that this is something God doesn't like? I believe that. I, I believe that because Torah says it's so. Because God says it's so. In fact, when we talk about the mitzvah of shaming, embarrassing, or exploiting somebody, 
The scripture even uses the terminology, Ani Hashem, I'm God, as if to say, I know the truth. You say you didn't mean to offend them. You say you didn't mean to heap any shame or embarrassment. But remember, I know the truth, says God. Well, if God says it in his Torah and he says he knows the truth, clearly he must care. So yes, from a faith perspective, I can say with absolute certainty that God does care. He cares if you place your trust in him. And as we've learned in many, many, many different examples and a whole array of possibilities during the course of this series, Hashem cares if you place your trust in him and the placing of trust in God is the number one thing that serves as a vehicle or a platform for receiving God's blessings. So Rabbeinu Bahaya now is going to say, when you, when you think about it, when you analyze things carefully, it doesn't even make sense to trust anybody else. In fact, you can't trust anybody other than God. Now, he makes his case methodically. And yesterday, in the previous episode, we learned that there are three things, for starters, out of seven, which are absolute requisites, categories that have to be, if you will, successfully met in order for us to be able to place our trust in somebody. As the Ned of Kodesh pointed out, and I'll, I'll, re- I'll repeat this only for emphasis, we learned this yesterday, in the beginning of the second chapter, the Ned the Barkodesh says, after we have all these seven things, then we know we have betochen, b'shlemut, we have real absolute trust, or that which is worthy of it. Now he says, zuladze, without all of these criteria being met, layir betuach, you could never actually be sure. Well, you can't be sure of anything. He promised he'd take care of me. He did. He meant to. Why didn't he? Well, because he died the next day? Because he lost all of his money? Because he lost his mind? Because he didn't realize? You might have placed your trust in a very powerful man or woman who let you down. Now, let's be honest and straightforward with ourselves. Is there anybody in the world in whom you can place absolute trust, total certainty, to the point that you can be blissfully confident and have not a worry in the world? Never have to think, well, maybe they... Maybe they won't come through. The answer to that question, when we're finished enumerating all seven of the criteria, is certainly going to be no, with one exception. And that's Hashem, that's God. But as Dineh de Bakaydash says, Yi yohapoil yoitze, the end result of these seven criteria being fully articulated, is going to be she'eni nimtza bebruim rak b'habayra. No creature has the ability to meet all these criteria. The only one who has the criteria necessary to earn our absolute trust 
to the point that we have nary a worry and no anxiety is only God, only the Creator. Kiddim Esayim, as Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to conclude, al korchacha in inoifel inyan abitochen v'amitosoy, you'll be forced to admit it's no contest that the idea of bitochen, trust and confidence, reliance, and its truth is ki'im b'haboyda, only with regard to Hashem. But this is a process. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar builds this idea. And it's possible that when you read the first criteria, you may say, yeah, yeah, I have, a, I have some friends who can measure up. I, I, I think, yeah, I can place my trust in them. The first criteria was they need to really care about you. They need to be emotionally attached to you. They say, well, I, yes, yeah, I can trust my spouse, I can trust my sibling, I trust my parents, trust my children, trust my good friends. Yeah, they, they, are, they really, really care about me. Whether it's mercy or pity or empathy, love, kindness, they're emotionally committed. The care is without a question. Okay. Of course, <laughs> God's in the running, but there may be others in the running so far. Now we go on to number two. Number two is that it's not enough to care. You have to be the kind of person who translates that care into action. Is this person prone to sometimes check out, not be present? Does he or she suffer from a cognitive dissonance where what they know and care doesn't translate into how they act or behave. The list might start getting smaller, as we talked about in great detail in the previous episode. And then we got to the third. And the third was that this person whom you're placing your trust in has to have the courage and stamina and the wherewithal to carry through till the end not to be distracted or overwhelmed, beat down, or perhaps convinced that helping you is not the right thing to do. Now, when we talked about this yesterday in our previous episode, I think it's possible that many of you could have thought, I, I know people like this, yes? I might have a really good friend who not only cares about me, not only is present at all times, but a person who I can rely on 100%. They carry things till their very end, till the end. They carry it out. Or maybe at this point, we're starting to graze heaven. So I'm going to, yesterday in the previous episode, it was about everybody. But I want to make this suggestion, and this is based on something that Khatam Sofer said, and I'll share that with you in a moment. I want to make the suggestion that this idea of things being carried out without any question, with absolute certainty, is actually somewhat divine. I'm saying that because, as the Khatam Sofer suggests, we should take a look at the beginning of Parshas Vo'era. This is the second portion in the second book of the Torah. 
the first Torah portion of Parshat Chumash Shemot, Parshat Shemot, introduces us to the Jewish people who arrived in Egypt as a family, swiftly bur burgeoned into a nation, and then sank into slavery. And then we get introduced to their pain, to their suffering, to the deprivation, and we get introduced to Moses. First we get introduced to Moses' mother, Moses' sister, the actions they take on behalf of the nation that makes them the worthy recipients of God's blessings. Interestingly, the father of Moses is not spoken of. His name isn't mentioned. Because if it was up to him, there wouldn't be a Moses. He separated from his wife. It was because he had a very righteous wife and an extremely holy little daughter. And it's Yocheved and Miriam who, in a sense, make the magic happen. Now, Amram is a big tzaddik. I don't mean to disparage him, but it is impossible to omit the fact that his name is omitted. At any rate, we get introduced to Moses. The birth of Moses, the miraculous saving of Moses through the daughter of the Pharaoh, the growing up of Moses, the character that resonates with courage and concern, the affirmative actions he takes, the subsequent personal exile he's forced into. And then we get introduced to Moses, the shepherd, who is being primed to become Moses, the Rebbe, the leader of the Jewish people, the first Rebbe of the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu is spoken to at a burning bush, and he's sent on a mission. Moses goes back down into the lion's den. He faces off with the Pharaoh. He makes his demands, as God said he should. And this is after he's spoken to the people, stirred their interest, they're engaged, they're, they're excited, and everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. The people are brutalized, tormented. They blame their suffering on Moses. And he is at the point of near collapse. He says to God, what's going on here? What is this about? Why did you send me? I didn't become the vehicle of salvation. I became the vehicle of torture. So God speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu at this point. And the parsha, the Torah portion, opens with the words, Vayedaber Hashem, Vayedaber Elohim, pardon me. We hear about God, but a very disciplined, almost a harsh expression of divinity. God speaks to Moshe. Vayedaber says, I am God. So he starts off, Vayedaber Elohim. Now the word Elohim, the name Elohim, refers to Midat Hadin, refers to this idea of Judgment, as Rashi says, Dibur itom mishpat. Moshe Rabbeinu is now being spoken to in harsh, disciplinary terms. For he has taken a very aggressive stance with God. And he said, Why have you mistreated this people? And God says to him, Ani Hashem. So, That's the harsh, aggressive, or disciplinary approach to Moses. 
And God says, I am Havaya. I am Hashem. What does it mean? Rashi says, Ne'eman l'shalem sachar taif. You can trust me. I'm trustworthy. I follow through. If I said it, it will be. I didn't send you for no reason. I sent you l'kayim devorai. I sent you to fulfill my words. These are the words, shedibarti la'avot harishonim, that I spoke to the first patriarchs. The truth is we only have three patriarchs. Who are the second, third, or fourth set of patriarchs? They don't exist. The Gemara in Masechet Brachot tells us that there's only three people in Jewish history who are called father. Avraham Avinu, Yitzchak Avinu, and Yaakov Avinu. So why do we need the word La'avot HaRishonim? So the Maharal of Prague, in his super commentary on Rashi, called Gurarye, he says, Hosif HaRishonim. Rashi adds the word. In the Medrash, which is the origin of Rashi's commentary, the word Harishonim doesn't appear. But Rashi adds those words. He injects those words because Iker Maharal is telling us the emphasis here is God says, I carry through. Yes, this was something that was said earlier, but I'm going to follow through. Trust me. Who else can say that? Who can say, just trust me? Um, everything's going wrong. You sent me with a very specific goal in mind. And not only have I not achieved my goal, but I have become the catalyst of quite the opposite. God says, trust me. Trust me. I said it. It'll be. Isn't this the argument that Rabbeinu Bahaya was making for the third criteria? That nothing will deter, delay, or in any way divert the provider from fulfilling his or her word? And maybe there is no his or her. This is not a human quality. But in the end, only God can say this. Maharal continues, and he says that if you take a look at the words, Va'era, I revealed myself, Rashi says, El Havot. El Havot to, to the patriarchs. What's he trying to add with these words? El Havot. It says, El Avraham, El Yitzchak, El Yaakov. The verse actually spells out the three patriarchs. So why does Rashi have to say, Va'era el ha'avot? Maharal says, that's the point. ani Hashem ne'eman. I'm God. I'm trustworthy. Place your betochen in me. Don't lose it. Because it doesn't seem to be unfolding as anticipated. Trust me. Lekayim haftocha laavot rishonim. Guraya, a little bit later on in the same commentary, says, Lefikach hosif Rashi avaira el haavot. That's why Rashi adds, he augments the words of the scripture, vaira, to the patriarchs. Loimar. 
This is not that I showed myself, I revealed myself to the patriarchs. That's nice. It's nice that they had prophecy and that they experienced a face-to-face personal relationship with God. No, says Maharal. This is not about who the Avot were or what they merited. This is all about one thing and one thing only. Trust me. I will follow through. This is along the same lines, within the same communication of what God spoke a moment ago. I have not sent you purposelessly. You're going to carry the prize home. I'm going to fulfill what I said. So how did God reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It says, Bekeel Shindaladyud, with the name of Shindaladyud. So the Maharal emphasizes, and he says you have to know that the word, the name of God, Shindaladyud, emphasizes or communicates this idea that God is able. Dai humoira al havtocha. The name Shindaladyud is, it's within his purview. Nobody, nothing can stop God. There's no greater force. So you got nothing to worry about. Just trust. It is enough, so to speak, within the purview of my divinity, my omnipotence, I promise, and it gets done. So you say, okay, very nice. So God says he promises and gets done, but who says a person can't promise and get things done? So the Khatam Sofer says, well, if you look at the commentary of Nachmanides, which incidentally precedes the Maharal, you'll see he talks about this very Rashi. And over there, Ramban says, Nira la'avot b'shem hazeh shahu minatseach ma'arochis shamayim. The point he wishes to make is that God, so to speak, is victorious. He bests the forces of heaven, even. He will do great miracles. The order of quantum physics will be suspended, also known as the way that reality or physicality or physics works is not going to have any bearing on what happens. Nothing can stop me, says God. And you must know that this is how God engages. It looks natural. It looks natural, but it's not. Ramban says the purpose of this communication is not only for now, it's for now and for always. God is communicating to Moshe Rabbeinu. You need to understand something. Whatever I said happens. Nothing will ever deter me. A promise is a promise. A commitment is a commitment. Nothing can stand in God's way. So trust me. Can anybody else in the world say to you, trust me?
it's inconceivable that I can't succeed in following through. Can anybody say that? Of course not. Only God can say that. In other words, Khatam Sofer's argument is already at the third condition of trust, the third criteria. Everybody's already gone from the race. Don't even bother trying to sign up. You care, that's nice. You're engaged, you're, you're supervising, so to speak, you're a, you're a helicopter mom, great. It ends here. Nobody else gets past the third gate. Because the third criteria is already within the purview of God and God alone. The Ramban says something interesting that I want to share with you because, of course, you know, we're modern-day people reading a story, a conversation between God and Moses that unfolded more than 33 centuries ago. That's true. Yet Ramban tells us that you have to know that minag ha'olam, the nature of the world as we know it, has got nothing on God. And this is because whenever we speak about Yehudim Shabbat Torah, promises, guarantees from God, Bibrachot, in the arena of blessings, the dimension of good things, or Klalot, or the opposite of a blessing. Things that aren't overtly good, like punishments. As Ramban continues, whether we talk about the tova, the goodness that comes to a person, vishar mitzvah, as remuneration for the efforts you make, for the mitzvahs you perform, or ra, or that which is overtly bad, be'onish avera, as a consequence a punishment for sin. He says you should know that none of this is natural. Rak b'maase hanes. It's always miraculous. It's beyond the realm of nature. Ve'im yunach, or as is written in the Torah, yuznach, ha'odom letivoy lemazoli, if a person is going to be left to his own devices, you know, my own destiny, stuff happens. Lo yasifu b'maysev Whatever you do can't change it. People talk about karma. Baloney. What kind of karma? What you do for others will come back to you. Says who? What necessitates that? If you are immoral, God will, st- will strike you. Maybe. If you are immoral, the world, nature, you know, you know, what are they called? The universe will repay you in kind. Says who? Where, where does it, where is it written? Where is the proof that if somebody is mean to some people, that somebody else will be mean to him? Says who? That if somebody is kind to somebody else, that they will in turn earn kindness from others. Says who? 
You were nice to somebody an hour ago. That's nice. You were kind and compassionate. Now you're an hour away, 20 kilometers elsewhere, you have an encounter and somebody's mean to you. And you say, what's going on over here? I was just nice and kind and they were mean. Yeah. Like, why should one thing have bearing on the other? Well, you know, it's a ripple effect and pay it forward. And if you keep doing things, eventually it will come back to you. Says who? That's a statistical anomaly. You make a, a ripple in the lake and it comes back to you 20 years later? Cast your bread on water. Who says so? It's not natural, says Ramban. That's not the way it is. It's the way God makes it. It's the way Hashem chooses things to be. That is not natural. That's a miracle. All reward and punishment in this world, it's all miraculous. It's also very much concealed. People could make the mistake of thinking this is the way the world goes. It's how stuff happens. It's not true. It's simply not so. And Nachmanides says that God can say, I'll follow through. No person can ever make a true guarantee. How does David HaMelech say in the Tillim we recite every single morning in our prayers, Do not place your trust in nobility. In a person who can't even save himself. Nobody knows what tomorrow brings. So why are we foolishly placing our trust in people who can't deliver? <laughs> Instead of placing our trust in Hashem, who will? The Chatam Sofer's comment is, from this point onward, already from the third criteria, everybody else is in the dust. It's only God. Others seem to maintain otherwise, but I think certainly, once we come into the fourth criteria, the bar is continually raised, it becomes almost impossible to fathom that any human being could measure up. And when we get to the fifth, it's unquestionable that this is only only in the hands, proverbially speaking, of the Creator. So this was a bit of an introduction, a follow-up from the previous episode, as we move into part two. Vaharavias, the fourth criteria. Sheyihiye Yodeya, that this provider, this, um, this person, if you will, that you're placing your trust in, this provider who you think is worthy of your unreserved trust. 
שיהיה יודע באופני תועלת הבוטח עולב. That he knows without any question the ways in which the person who places trust in him is able to benefit. So the word ofne is like in Hebrew, we say the word ofan, and ofan means away. The Paslechem, in his commentary on the words, what is ofne? It's, it's, it's unusual Hebrew, that's the truth. Ibn Tibbin didn't write the Hebrew that we, the Torah Hebrew even that we speak today. So he says ofne is, the person, maybe there is no such person, the object, the force that you place your trust in, the provider that you are going to unreservedly, unabashedly, unquestionably place your trust in, would have to know the best way to help you. So a person could be caring and capable and committed, but he does not know how to help you. And here the Paslachin gives us a simple example of a person that people place their trust in all the time. People trust doctors. Now, I'm not here to cast aspersion or a shadow on the medical practitioners or, or on the medical community. But the doctor's not God. We make a big mistake of thinking that if I have this doctor, I survive, or another doctor, I die. The truth is that everything is in the hands of as our sages refer to, the healer of all flesh, the one who can do awesome things. That's Hashem. If a doctor has a better track record or performed a particular procedure more successfully than others, it doesn't necessarily mean that this particular surgery or medical procedure is necessarily going to be successful this time. It doesn't necessarily mean so. Nobody bats a thousand. So when the person who bats 750 is up at the plate, people are more confident or have more hope that he'll belt it out of the park, so to speak. Yet, you could have somebody who bats 750, and I don't know if anybody bats that high, just by the way. Bat 750 strikeout, and the person who's batting 50 hit a home run. It could happen. The person who bats 50 did hit a home run once before. The person who batted 800 struck out once before. Actuarial science is a, an oxymoron. Because science, strictly speaking, means knowledge. And when somebody throws a coin up, there's a 50% chance that it's going to be heads or tails. And after throwing it up once, and it turns out heads, when you throw up the coin a second time, there's a 50% chance that it's going to be heads or tails. And if the second toss-up gives you heads, 
at the third toss-up, you still have a 50-50% chance that it's going to be heads or tails. Because the truth is that the previous toss-up has no influence whatsoever on the next toss-up. It's a toss-up. Toss-ups are 50-50. So, should we not look for a good doctor? Of course you should. We're going to talk about that later on in Shara B'tochen. We are actually obligated, mandated, to do everything within our power to ensure that it will go well. But after you do everything in your power because Torah says you should, you place your trust in Hashem. <laughs> My doctor, I have a wonderful doctor. This doctor has such feelings for me. They care so deeply about me. Okay, criteria one, they care. This doctor is never checked out. They're always engaged. They're like superhuman. They never have a bad day. The, especially with me. They're always going to be engaged and involved and they're not going to check out and they're always going to... Okay, very nice. This doctor is engaged. Check. And what if there's going to be challenges or issues? My doctor will fight like a lion. Nothing will stand in his way. Okay. I trust this doctor. I trust him implicitly. Uh, what if he makes a mistake? My doctor. Never. This man or woman is such a genius. Geniuses don't make mistakes. Listen to what the Paslechem says. You have a Reife. He's a Rachaman. Merciful. He's compassionate. He's, he cares. He's a Zoriz. He's, he's super motivated. Extremely capable. He can do everything to heal the patient. He knows how to do this. This is a, you know, we have already tried and tested methods. Was one little problem. Yeah, what was that? He didn't diagnose correctly. He missed the diagnosis. <laughs> he had the ability. He missed the diagnosis. He didn't know the right drug. He didn't have the right salmon, the right herb, as it used to be called. Even though he has it in his arsenal. The drug was available. He just misdiagnosed. You know, elsewhere in Jewish philosophy, it's written that diagnostics is 50% of the healing. Yedias hamachla chatsi Knowing what's right, the right diagnostics already gets you halfway there. At least you know what's really wrong. Sometimes the doctors just can't figure it out. They're baffled. And then sometimes one doctor says, hmm, we didn't do this test. Or he puts two and two and two and two and he creates an, adds it up and says, wow, it was a red herring. Everybody was looking at that, but that's actually a symptom the root source is elsewhere. My dear friends, no human being is perfect. Human beings can make the best effort. But in the end, it's in Hashem's hands. 
Oh, some people call that coincidence or luck, which are conversely an 11-letter or four-letter different name for God. <laughs> Where does that come from? HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, is engaged and involved at all times. The more we place our trust in Him, the more powerfully we position ourselves to receive His blessings. God's blessings will come through the guise of nature. You happened, just happened, to know the right person, to call the right agency, to find the right doctor who happened to chance upon the right diagnosis. Who can you trust? Who can you place your trust in with unreserved certainty? Only God. And this, says the Paslechem, is what Rabbeinu Bechaya means when he says that the fourth criteria is that the provider is Yodea Be'ofne, with in all ways, in all manners, so to speak. Furthermore, Velo Ye'ole Mimenu, Mashu Tevle, doesn't miss anything. Sometimes people have the best of intentions. How are they to know that things would unfold in this fashion? Oh, you should have spoken to the experts. Like the experts always know. Did you ever hear the expression, hindsight is 20-20? Looking back at things, everybody had it figured out. Debacle after debacle after debacle. In every which arena. In the political arena. In the military arena. In the economic arena. In health and sciences arena. In every, in, you look at it internationally. We've seen debacle after debacle, disaster after disaster in the last 25 years. And each time the experts came and said, well, listen to the experts. If you would have taken the warnings. A month ago they called the guy who was giving that warning a conspiracy theorist and a crackpot, a nut job. And then all of a sudden, it didn't turn out to be as crazy as everybody thought. I'm not suggesting you take every crackpot seriously. Because even a broken clock is right twice a day. So people will point to one conspiracy theorist who came up with an idea, and it actually was proven. He, in the end, everybody said A, and this person said B, and Mr. B was right. Guess what? It doesn't mean that there's credibility for every crackpot or every extremist. You see, the point is that no human being can foresee the future and know exactly how things are going to unfold. Would you call the person who bought the Twin Towers just days before they came crashing down, a bad investor? Did he not do his due diligence? Success, they say, is an illegitimate child. Everybody claims paternity. 
The failure is an orphan. Nobody knows where it came from. Not I. No, of course not. Rebbeinu Bechayah says, there is no human being. Who is there that law ye menu mashu For who will never maybe make a mistake of what is actually good for the individual who placed the trust in him. And this could be banister, ubanira. This could be in that which is overt, obvious, that which is entirely not obvious. Banister ubanira, says the Paslechem is. Sometimes you have something which is good in the short term, in the immediate, and haram muster, the very bad ending, nobody could have predicted it. He gives a simple example of a, a monarch who appoints somebody to be a supreme commander of his armed forces, and everybody was jealous, and in the end, that's why he was exposed to danger and captured. Did, did, the, did the king want to harm his friend by putting him in that position? Of course not. So you'll say, well, you know, the, that's the business of life. If, if, you, if there's no risks, then there's no profit. It's true that according to risk, actuarially will assign a certain level of profitability, but that's not actually so. You go into a high-risk investment, so you take a bigger risk, you're going to get a higher dividend from your blue chip stocks. But the truth is that you can invest in something very low risk and do extremely well, or invest in something high risk and do extremely poorly, or do extremely well too. It's, it's always 50-50. And there are so many variables at play and so many unpredictable things at play, nobody could ever be sure of anything. My stockbroker is fantastic. My investor, my investment banker, he knows exactly how to invest. He's got a streak, a record. For 20 years, he's been five points above the average. And then in the 21st year, he lost everything. <laughs> like, there's no stories like this. And then the experts come in and say where he went wrong. After it happened, of course. But the point that Rabbeinu B'chayi makes is this level of certainty simply isn't found. And therefore, nobody deserves our trust. I don't mean be suspicious of everybody. Because this is a series. In the first chapter, what kind of trust we speak of has already been defined. If you're just joining us, now you got to go back and watch that. But once you know the kind of trust we're speaking of, you understand that that trust can't be placed in any other provider. Rabbeinu B'chayi now continues. He says, Who knows how things will turn out at the end? Sometimes he says it seems like a very bad choice in the outset. But in the end, it turns out to be the greatest blessing. How many stories are there like that? Bad things happening to people. And you say, God, I did A, B, C, and D. How could you do this to me, God? Why is God doing this to me? And then years later, a person looks back and he says, you know, if that wouldn't have happened to me. I can't even imagine where I'd be today. 
So what looked really bad turned out to be really good. Who can you trust that way? Implicitly. The person I placed my trust in did something for me which is very bad. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to keep trusting him. Because I know it just looks that way. Only God can be the address at this point. Only God really can satisfy criteria number four. If he doesn't know all of this, doesn't have all this information, then how could the soul of the truster be at peace? And now, now says Rabbeinu Bechaya, let's do some quick arithmetic. Let's tally up, not just criteria number four, which seems to be really only in the hands or in the purview of God. But this is a compounded thing. Now he says we're going to tally it all up together. Says the Neder Bakodesh Ratzalem. He means to say, what does he mean? Iskab to gather it together. This provider you trusted in. That has to have four criteria met. It's going to pass these four tests with flying colors. Number one, number one, this person, he's got his wits about him. He knows exactly what's really good for you. The Yecholte extremely capable. The never checked out. Always right there for you. And he cares. As the commentaries point out here, now it's going kind of Backwards, he, he, he enumerates everything in a backwards fashion. As the Paslechem says, We've now relisted the four criteria, from the most recent one to the one that we learned prior, and then the one before that. So once you finish coming through the fourth criteria, you realize no person has this. And remember, this is a compounded thing. That has to come after the capability and after the engagement. And after the care and concern. When you have all that met, Yechzak Now, at this point, definitely going to be comfortable placing his trust at this point. Because, I mean, this is a person you could trust. A person? <laughs> Who? And we're only four criteria in. And now, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar continues. And he says, truth be told, it doesn't stop here. It actually goes further. There is another criteria that would have to be met for you to unreservedly trust somebody. By now, everybody's out of the running already. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar continues. Vachamishis, the fifth criteria. That he is singular, singularly focused 
for the person who placed his trust in him. Okay, let's use the doctor example. Because people trust the doctor. All the lawyer example. You're in trouble. You just had an event. A medical event. A disaster. God forbid a terrible thing just happened. A heart attack. A stroke. A, a terrible thing. My doctor will be there for me. Sorry, sir. Dr. So-and-so is not available. What do you mean he's not available? He always is available for me. You're not his only patient. This is the biggest cardiologist in the world. But he's my cousin. True. Big cardiologist. But now he's busy with somebody else. Pull him out of surgery. I need him now. Yeah, really? You're not his only charge. Tell me, who has people that are, so to speak, on deck for them and them only? There might be such a thing. There could still be a few humans who are in the running. Maybe you have a prime minister, a president, a king, a queen, I don't know. Somebody who has a doctor on call does nothing but be there for them. Maybe. What if their spouse or child gets sick? Will they still be there for you first? I'll fire them. Fire me. As the Nerdah Bakredish puts it, he says, Mityached Ratzalaymer, what, what the author means to say, and what Rabbi Yehuda ibn Tibbin's words, the translation means to say is, Miyached Esliba. He's emotionally focused, singularly focused. Because sometimes you can have somebody at your beck and call but they may not be there. I mean, they're there physically, but their mind is elsewhere. How dare you have your mind elsewhere? The person's depressed. How could you be thinking about somebody else? It's my family. It's my spouse. It's my parent. It's my child. You needed to be thinking only about me. Uh, I know you're a narcissist, sir, but I tried. I wasn't able. Who in the world can you be certain of that you are the only concern for he or she? The only concern. And they are fully focused emotionally. And no matter what they're doing, when you call, nothing matters. Nothing. Do you understand how deep and profound our relationship with God can be? Of course, you say to me, like, how is it possible that God should be able to be engaged with everybody at the same time? And of course, I can't answer that because I'm not God. We, not, we can't really fathom it. <laughs> Rabbi Shmuelu once told me something. He said, you know, I was thinking about it. He says about how God can be engaged with each one. And he says, I was thinking about the, you're on the highway. This is years ago. This is when we still had like GPS machines. That wasn't everybody's phone. And he says, you have hundreds of thousands of cars on the highway. They all have a GPS. They're all plugged in to go to different directions. They're all getting different directions from the same satellite. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's just a metaphor. Of course, there's no emotional engagement. It's all functional. And it can all be rationalized scientifically. It's still a little, quite captivating. God is involved with every one of us 100%. God is there for you personally. 1,000%. Nothing else matters. How could that be?
That's God. By the time we're talking about this criteria, I mean, it's not even possible to fathom that any provider other than God should be able to measure up. And Rabbeinu Bahaya says, if they can't pass this threshold, they don't deserve your trust, your betachen. And foolishly, we place our betachen elsewhere. The Toy Valavonin says something similar to the Nedabakadish. She also understands the word as mityached, he says, that those who place their trust in him, so then he's totally involved in every one of your details, totally engaged in your details, and he's totally committed to you. There is another way of understanding the word mityached here. In the commentary of the Paslechem, he suggests that the word mityached means is. He is your only provider, your consistent provider. You know, like a company that provides for you on occasion is not your real provider. That's your provider that's always there for you. Suppose like you're a WhatsApp guy. Yeah, WhatsApp disappointed you a couple of days ago, didn't it, eh? It just didn't work anymore. And for people who are functioning on WhatsApp, all of a sudden they were unable to function. Ha, I'm a smart guy, you say. I have email, text message, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and Telegram. Okay, the very fact that you have multiple platforms is proof in and of itself that you don't rely on any of them singularly. So nothing really earns my trust. This can go wrong, at least I have another method. Trust means I have nothing to think about. Not a worry. This will always be there for me. And of course, all the things I mentioned can only help you with regard to communication and a specific or slender dimension of it. But God provides us with everything. So, he says the singular nature means he is your singular provider, your sole provider. You know, there's a business idea today of professional companies that give you all the services you need under one roof, like professional fi- finance companies that will have a, a, a tax advisor and, 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 and a gifted accountant and legal experts, a whole array of things you'll need under one roof. People like that. People like these conglomerates where you have one company takes care of me. I trust this company. Can you ever trust? Anybody? Absolutely. And that company is only going to take care of your professional needs, your fiduciary needs, your legal needs. So far, nobody's thought of incorporating a medical team there as well. And then they have this business of specialties versus specialties that work, that operate together. Also known as a hospital sometimes. (laughs) The point is that we like the idea of getting our needs met by a single address. We like that. We like that. I like to advertise that we're the one-stop shop, one-stop, one address for Yiddishkeit needs. I can't help you with your health. I can't give legal advice. I can't help you with your finances. I can't help you with your plumbing or electrician needs. Sorry, we don't do that at Chabad. We do windows, though. I mean, I'm kidding, we don't. You know what I'm saying. 
the, these providers are providers. Every provider is a provider that takes care of an area of your life. But a real provider that you can trust in implicitly is the provider that gives you everything. Who's that going to be? If not God. Furthermore, not only is this provider your one-stop address for everything. Maybe somebody will come up with a new business idea where everything's under the same roof. There's never been any other. At this point, it's impossible to fathom anything other than God. And that's actually where Rabbeinu Bachai is going. Because, in the words of the Paslechem, the singular nature of this provision. Also in the Marpel and Nefesh, he says, Yachid oid acher. Singular means he is the sole, singular provider. He says, this is a, an absolute situation. Always. Mitchilas haviyosei. From the beginning of his existence, this refers, says the Paslechem, to Yitzirase, conception in your mother's womb. Vigidulai, and your gestation, or your growing, growing up. Gidulai, says the Paslechem, Gidulai bibetan. This is the nine months of gestation in which you turn out from being a, a single cell, a fertilized egg, into a human being. The child is constantly changing and developing. During those nine months, we change more in those nine months than we change from the next 90 years. Who was there with us at the moment of conception? Who was your provider? Who enabled your conception? As one fertility specialist once said to me, he said, the fact that any of us are here, to me, is, is amazing, he says. He says, it seems to me, and this is a scientist speaking, that the sperm actually colliding with the egg Seems to me, he says, like getting a hole in one. How often do people get a hole in one? I mean, it happens. It once happened to one of our golf tournaments. It could happen. There's insurance for it. Because it could happen. There are a lot more people than there are holes in one. I don't really understand how a person could make a statement like that, but I'm not a scientist or a fertility specialist. And he says to me, it's literally a hole in one. The size of these tiny sperms, and the, 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 the amount of distance, and the nature of the swimming, he says, like, it's, it's anything but a foregone conclusion. So our conception is an act of God. It's a miracle. Not only is our conception a miracle, but the gestation of a human being is miraculous. We talked about this earlier in one of the previous episodes where Rabbeinu Bechaya describes the placenta. And he describes how Hashem creates this marvelous reality where a woman's body metamorphoses into that which can sustain new life. Who is there for us? God. So God allows for the fertilization. Now you've begun. 
God is the one who provides for the gestation. And then, after you're born, who's there for you? The Yankusei. Once you're born, you're called a suckling. In the language of the Talmud, Yonek Mishdei Imo. Suckles from his mother's breasts. That's a baby. And then we grow up. We have our youth. God is with us. God provides for us. And then the same provider is there for Vishisusai. Vishisusai is a, it's a funny word. It's not, it's not the Hebrew we speak. So, I mean, I saw the art school translated as through middle age and old age. In the, in the Kihat version, he translates this word as Vishi Shusai, as adulthood and old age. Now, why does it mean that? Like, what kind of word is that? So, the Neda Bakadish is the closest to actually giving us a, a reasonable definition of the word. He says that Vishi Shusai, this funny word, is made up of two Hebrew words yes, yes. Yes, yes means yes, yes. Or there's existence, there's a sense of self-awareness, interest, desire. He says this refers to the years in which people have motivation. They want to live. They're motivated by one thing or another thing. Adulthood, middle age. And then there's the old years. What the Neda Bakredish calls Yomim She'ein Behem Chefetz. Days where there's no motivation for anything. At some point, people could be in an old folks home. They're just existing. They're not living, they're existing. But throughout, who is our sole provider? Who has been there for us every single moment of that time? God. God got you here. And now, I trust in God. Hmm. Will God provide for me? He provided for you till now. He'll take care of you and they'll go forward. He's got a track record. If you got this far by God's grace, why can't you go further by God's grace? Ad Until, so to speak, the end of your purpose, the end of your existence in a physical or material terrestrial sense, it refers, of course, to the end of one's days. And all of this becomes clear to the trusting entity. It's only logical. You're compelled to place your trust. The Yishoyin are love, and you will rely fully. Because there's a track record. A track record. Got us this far? He promises to sustain us. What are you so worried about? From the goodness 
that a person receives at every moment the good of the past, the dynamic good, the this alone should strengthen our trust. This alone. Just to be mindful, just to recognize the abundant goodness and kindness and the continuous beneficence that God bestows upon us. The Paslechem says, God has been good to you from the very beginning. What, God abandons me now? If he was going to abandon me, why did he abandon me 50 years ago? Because God didn't want to abandon me. I have to trust in God then. He'll never abandon me. He didn't abandon me till now. He's not going to abandon me and go forward. This, this argument, if you will, or this criteria, is based on what we call experience. So emuna, faith in Hashem, which is supposed to be distilled, built into bitachin, into trust in Hashem, is founded on experience. If somebody's never let you down, would you trust them? If a doctor saves your life ten times, would you look for a new doctor when you have an 11th challenge? If your financial advisor was batting a thousand for two decades, would you look elsewhere? Why wouldn't you trust this provider? But even when you can trust a provider for a specific narrow need that you have, it's only that need. You can't ignore the fact that life is complicated and there are a lot of moving pieces a person's finances could be in order and their health is in shambles a person's health can be in order and their family life is broken their relationships are on the rocks who can you trust who can you place your trust in to the point that you have no anxiety who's always been there for you Unmistakable conclusion is one. Hakadosh Baruch, Almighty God. The Paslechem interprets the words of Hatovos Haodfot. He says, "These are the things which are obviously good, immediately good." And then there's the Toaliot Hamatmidot, the continuous things that are good. He says, "Some of these things, with the continuum of time." turn out to be good. You've seen that. You've seen how God was good for you every moment that sustained you. You see how Hashem ordained things that worked that good for you at a later point. Have betachen. Have trust in Hashem. It's interesting, and perhaps maybe even like augments things and, and makes them even clearer for us, to point out now that this argument, this idea that we trust in Hashem, so to speak, implicitly, based on the proverbial track record, is an idea which is far more widespread in our Jewish observances than this narrow concept of betochen, which is actually pretty broad, but not, not, ju not just the Shara betochen. 
So, for example, there is a mitzvah in the Torah. It's called sukkah. The mitzvah that once a year we spend a week, or outside of Israel, eight days, in a temporary shelter. It's a shelter. It gives you shade. But it won't help you if you end up with inclement weather. The rain comes through. The cold gets through. The intense heat can beat down on you. You get some shade. It can offer you shade. That's all. It's a shelter. It can give you some privacy. But primarily shade. That's all. We're exposed to the elements. Why do we do this? I mean, the Torah says so. But Hashem in His Torah says, because you dwelt in such a reality when you left the land of Egypt. So Rashi says, it's Anani HaKovet. It's God's miraculous protection that enveloped us. And Nachmanides, in his commentary, this is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 23. Nachmanides says, I would have to agree with Rashi here. Even in Derech Apshat, even though on a literal level, the clouds of glory couldn't be seen, felt, or touched, but the people did live in temporary huts or tents. Ten cities they built for themselves. Yet, Ramban says, the point in Derech Apshat is, Kitziva Sheyedu Hadiris. God wanted the generations to know. As Kol Maise Hashem, all the saving acts of God. Asher Lahafli, the amazing things that happened when we left the land of Egypt. Yes, that He, so to speak, enveloped us in His clouds of glory. It's literal. Well, how are we going to remember that? Well, by exposing ourselves to the elements and saying, you know what? We're exposed now. And, and it makes us vulnerable. That's how it was when we left Egypt. Well, how did we survive? How didn't we get hurt? And the answer is because Hashem took care of us. In other words, Anani HaKovid ultimately is a, a euphemism as much as it's literal. It represents God's embrace. Oh, by the way, the sukkah represents God's embrace. The Arizal talks about this in great detail. He even describes the halacha that talks about two and a half walls as a hug. Wall one, wall two and a half. God embraces us. God took care of us for 40 years. Listen to the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya Bar Osher II. In his commentary in the book of Leviticus, he says that the purpose, the reason for dwelling in the sukkah is that it become widely revealed, known. From the observance of the mitzvah of sukkah, the incredible level of special care that the Jewish people received, how virtuous we were, so to speak, and what high esteem God held us, how well He took care of us. We went 
so to speak, with a very, very heavy population. 600,000 men from the age of 20 to 60. How about all the kids? How about all the elderly? Moses himself was 80 years old when they left the land of Egypt. He lived 120. And it doesn't seem to be an incredibly long life. How about all of the, the women? It's usually going to be a man for every woman. That's not 600,000. That's now about 2 million or 2.5 million. You can't sustain 2 million people. I shared this with you before. I don't remember where I read it. That there was a, a logistics expert in Israel who did a calculation of what it would take to feed this amount of people in the desert with food and water for one day. The tally was either at or close to 60,000 tractor-trailers. 60,000 tractor-trailers. The, the person who did this was very, very skilled in creating these logistics. He worked for the IDF. And an army has to make sure that if it has 1,000 or 100,000 soldiers stationed somewhere, that they're fed. So they're pretty good at this. 60,000 tractor-trailers a year. We spent 40 years, 40 years. How do we survive? Who even thinks about this? Well, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says that's precisely the point. The point is that you should not make the mistake of thinking, you know, the people purchased provisions. They got by. No, no, he says. It was miraculous. That's why we emphasize Anane Kovoid. This couldn't have been understood in natural or normal terms. Maybe they made huts or tents, fine, but that's not the point. They were enveloped, surrounded from all sides. This is the main point. God says, I settled you into Sukkot. We want to emphasize how miraculous it is. So we don't follow the opinion in the Talmud that says literal Sukkot, temporary dwellings. But rather we emphasize its supernatural nature. In the Kara Kemach, another fascinating teaching, or I should say book from Rabbeinu Bechai II, he has all kinds of topics in alphabetical order, and he has a, a whole article on sukkah. And when he talks about the sukkah, he says, he says that every mitzvah has a revealed element to it and a hidden element to, to it. And he says, the sukkah has both. There's this literal element, but then there's miracles that are beyond. And he says, the point of the sukkah is, yes, we were in a temporary situation. We needed to be provided for. We didn't have shelter from harsh inclement weather, from the realities of a howling wilderness or a desert. We needed food. We needed hydration. We needed protection. And yet, somehow we survived. Rabbeinu Bechaya writes in the Kadakemach, 
This must be a zikaron lederes haboyim. This is about future generations who must know this. Do not make the mistake of thinking that people got by. It is impossible for people to survive such an experience. The Torah says, build the sukkah. Spend that time in the sukkah. Make yourself vulnerable. Find out what it's like to live outside of your home. Not in the wilderness. God didn't ordain that the entirety of the Jewish people goes to bivouac for a week somewhere in a nature reserve. Just go out of your homes. And all of this is Kadeshi is gala that this mitzvah should become the vehicle that delivers the message in a very profound way. And how virtuous it was for us as you went through the desert during our Sinai journeys. This is because the future can come along people and say, the people who lived it, lived it. They, they believe it. But the future generations, they start to have doubts. Say, well, maybe there's some exaggeration here. Maybe it's not exactly so. Maybe there wasn't really a desert. Maybe they were kind of close to civilization. And they took a lot of money from Egypt. So they continually, continuously purchased the provisions they needed. Maybe they were like the Jewish people are doing today, making the desert bloom in the Negev. Maybe they planted the Sinai Desert. We know there. Even Rabbeinu Bechaya talks about it in his times, before the kibbutzniks who made the desert bloom. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, God says, forget about it. It's ridiculous thoughts. They're all notions and wrong-headed ones too. Be out in the sukkah. See how that goes for a week. You will begin to realize the incredible miracle of what happened there. Benabachai says, do you know why Joshua forbade the rebuilding of the city of Jericho? He says he wanted there to be some kind of remnant. Something people could come back and see. By the way, they did find recent archaeological discoveries that corroborate perfectly with the story of Yehoshua. Because, because they found remnants of incredibly powerful walls. And then are breached in a normative way. They didn't find arrowheads. They didn't find any remnants of war. And they found enormous storehouses, areas of what was provisions. No logical reason that that city should have fallen. For generations, you can go and see it. It's very powerful for people to see things. It's very profound for people to experience something. There's a letter written by the Rebbe the day after Yom Kippur in the year 1950, and he says that the mitzvah of sukkah is unique because it requires mindfulness. As the Torah says, Laman yedu your generations must know. In fact, the Bach rules that if somebody spends time in the sukkah but doesn't think about God's miracles, he doesn't fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah. Because the mitzvah of sukkah is not just about physical presence. It's about mindfulness and consciousness. 
In other words, this is the argument Rabbeinu B'chayim makes. Let me drive the point home, if I may, with the words of Nachmanides. No. It'll be the words of Rabbeinu B'chayim that I want to share with you in conclusion. Rabbeinu B'chayim says that all of the miracles that happened to the Jewish people happened to them in a way that inspired Betochen. In his commentary on Parshas B'Shalach, he speaks about the crossing of the Reed Sea. And he says, and I quote, All of these things that happened to us were tests, tests that would demonstrate our mettle, our courage, and God's care and concern. The word nisayon means a test, but in Hebrew, it's also an experience or having experience. As they say in modern day, yesh li nisayon, I have experience. Kishiyotsu mimitzrayim, when the Jewish people left Egypt, this was experiences. We should have experience. We should experience betochen. Sheroiv hanisim asher bamidbar that the vast overwhelming majority of miracles that happened to us in the desert, was to test their hearts, to give them an experience. He says, let's talk about the crossing of the Reed Sea. Rabbeinu B'chayah says, this is incredible. Did you know that the sea didn't actually split open? It opened as they kept walking. They kept walking, and as they were walking, the sea opened before them. It didn't just open up like the way it is in the movies. To give them a long pathway, land shelf through the water. It's a beautiful scientific theory. It's just not true. It's not what our Torah says. There may be a land shelf somewhere in, on some ocean and low tides and high tides. That's not Kriyas Yamsuf. Fantastic story. Not the story of the Torah. Not remotely the story of the Torah. So instead of doing a long pathway, Rabbi Nobuchaya says, was ma'at, ma'at. Slowly but surely. The sea was shrinking from before them. They would see the sea literally fleeing before their eyes. And this is the words that David HaMelech says in the verses that comprise Halal. The sea saw and it shrank. Now, I have to tell you that we don't particularly have this medrash. The medrash we have in today's version, doesn't say this, but Rabbeinu B'chai clearly had a different version of the Medrash. He had a Medrash like this. And he says, the sea, the splitting sea, was just like the falling of the manna. How much manna fell? Did you get a week supply? Pantry full? Enough for one day. Never more than the provisions of a day, with the exception of Shabbat, where you got Friday and Shabbat. But the next day was back to one day at a time. Why did Hashem have to make it this way? 
Why did he always have to have us at the edge of the cliff? You have enough food for today. Tomorrow, no clue. To get us used to? Madregas habitochoim. It's all about trust in Hashem. In other words, our history, our experience should help us to trust in Hashem. Hashem forged our people in a cauldron of miracles so that after 40 years of continuous miracles, we were always just one step away from extinction, one step away from starvation, one step away from expiation, one step away from not having what we needed. Every single moment, one step away. 40 years, we never tripped. We never slipped. It always worked out. As a pattern start to emerge, trust Hashem. Have betochen. That's the point. I think this beautifully brings together the argument that Abenu Bahaya makes. I have to be uh, the art scroll uh, version basically sewed together, sent me off to these different locations where make, they make the beautiful argument that this idea that Abenu Bahaya is talking about is actually implicit within our Torah Yiddishkeit understanding of Jewish history. So people say to me, how will Israel survive? What's the future of the Jewish people? And I'm like, I have no doubt we live forever. They're like, how could you be so sure? What about A, B, C, and D? It's the only thing I don't know is if your or my children will be amongst them, but I do know the Jewish people live forever. I can't take for granted that our children will be amongst them, that we have to work at. That Am Yisrael will survive? We survive till now. We will live forever. This is true for the nation of Israel. And as we pointed out in one of the first episodes of the series, it's true for every one of us as an individual. That's the words of Rambam in Mor Nevuchim. Maimonides in his Guide to the Perplex says, all of the ideas that apply to the nation, Am Yisrael apply to the individual, Rabbi Yisrael. Such is the nature of our relationship with Hashem. And the stronger our betochen gets, the more profound our trust is in God, the more we become recipients, worthy vessels of God's continued blessing. May our faith and our trust, our betochen, be built and strengthened. And may we merit only goodness in an overt and obvious way as a result of it. And hopefully, very, very soon in our time, the result of all of our betochen, our faith and our trust in Hashem, leads us to the fulfillment of Hashem's promise. He won't let us down. The coming of Mashiach, b'mheira, will be amenu speedily. And in our days, amen. Thank you so much for joining today. If you enjoyed this lecture, please hit like, Share it with your other friends on social media. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. YouTube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. Have a beautiful day.